scripture passage this morning is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, or 1 through 12, excuse me. It can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1,664. It's been a while since we've been in John, but we are uh, back to it. So, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm not sure if you've ever gone to an art gallery, but oftentimes these art galleries will display a prominent person's artwork and It will be filled with this man's work or woman's work. And you'll go because you want to look upon this person's life's work. All these beautiful pieces of art that are displayed in this gallery. And in some way, John is writing his gospel like that. Where he pays attention to these sign miracles. These miracles, these signs that he places throughout the Gospel of John. And it's important to take notice of the miracles that John emphasizes, that John puts in his Gospel account, because it's like an art gallery. It's like these are the signs, the miracles, by which John wanted to display the wonderful art of God. And the redemption of sinners in Jesus Christ. In fact, John will say, Christ did many more miracles. And if we had to write them all down, there wouldn't be enough pen and paper in this world. But John did write this miracle down. The healing of the blind man. So, let's take a look at that miracle this morning. The Son of God is the light of the world who came to save suffering sinners 
like you and me. The Son of God is the light of the world who came to save suffering sinners like you and me. We're going to look at this passage in three parts. The first part is sin and suffering. The second is sent to save. And the third is show and tell, okay? Sin and suffering, sent to save, show and tell. And so one thing that we need to get here as we begin to look at this passage is context. Like I said, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John. So chapter 9, though, starts a new section in John's Gospel. We're transitioning from a period of conflict with the unbelieving leaders, which really covered chapters 5 through 8, to a time of ministry among those who believe in Christ, those who place faith in Christ. Now this contrast is seen if you just take a moment to compare John chapter 8, verse 59 In John chapter 1, John chapter 8, verse 59 says, At this they picked up stones to stone him, because Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am, or before Abraham was, I am. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So on one end, you've got the religious leaders who are trying to stone Jesus because they believe he's committing blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God. And then on the other hand, you see As Christ went along, he saw a man blind from birth and had compassion on him. Christ previously was teaching the religious leaders, but in their rejection, he's walked away. And as he was going, he encounters a blind man and he stops to help him. This shows that Christ came for sinners and not the righteous, for the sick and not the healthy. So with that context in mind, let's look at the first point, sin and suffering. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the opening or the setting the stage of what's to come after with the healing of the blind man and this miracle. And this this blind man who was blind from birth is then going to be interrogated by the religious leaders. His parents are going to be interrogated by the religious leaders. Then he is going to be interrogated by the religious leaders again. And at the end, not until the end of the chapter, does Christ come back to comfort the man who's truly been abused by those in spiritual authority. But it also brings before us a complicated issue, which has long been debated. And the issue, of course, is sin and its connection with suffering in this world. And we could say God's place in it all. What's God's relationship to sin and to suffering? One commentator suggests that the statement put forth by the disciples about the blind man provides us with an opportunity to point out errors many people express about trials and sufferings. And this is what the, the disciples said. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they see a blind man born blind, and they say, well, there has to be someone who sinned here, the parents or the uh, man himself. These are the four errors, okay? One is, or three, these are the three errors. One is karma. It's an Eastern concept that often comes into our way of thinking. You're suffering for something done in a past life. The blind man's own sin caused it. And in fact, although we know that that concept is ridiculous... What might have been in the disciples' mind here is that at that time, uh, ancient Jewish rabbis taught that a baby could sin in the womb. 
And that was a reason for why some babies are born with birth defects. So maybe uh, this man in the womb was like, Mommy, if you eat one more piece of asparagus and I have to taste asparagus through the umbilical cord, I'm going to be so mad. There's a sin. Born blind. Boom. Just like that. So that is one explanation. Your own sin, the man's own sin, maybe it was in the womb, right, Uh, caused this man to be born blind. The second error is that it's the the result of the sins of parents or even ancestors. So generational judgment. And you can even look at some passages in the Old Testament that seem to point to this concept, right? Uh, I, I hold the sins uh, against them to the third and fourth generation is what it says in uh, the commandment, right? Um, but then in Ezekiel it says, the man should not be held guilty for the sins of his father. So how do we correlate these? Well, the idea here is that there are some sorts of generational sins that can get passed on like uh, easily angered, like lust, like those kinds of things, like drug addiction, where someone's addicted to drugs and that baby is born addicted to drugs. Some of those kinds of concepts, we could say, are kind of like a generational passing on of sinful characteristics or traits. But through Christ, we know that's broken. And the third error is this. Every instance of suffering is caused by God's immediate wrath. If you're going through a hard time, it's because God's angry with you. If you are suffering, it's because God is judging you. Now, if you think about that, this is the perspective of Job's friends. And Jesus' disciples aren't that much better here. In their mind, the relation between God and suffering is that if someone is suffering, the only possible answer is that someone is being judged for a particular sin. All these fall short. But does that mean there's no explanation for the connection between sin and suffering and God's relationship to it all? Of course not. The first thing that we need to understand is that sin is connected to suffering. The presence of sickness and ailments that people are born with, such as blindness, are a direct result of the curse and sin, particularly Adam's sin. So one thing that Jesus could have said here is, uh, no, not the man's sin, no, not the parent's sin, Adam's sin. Sin as the present state of this fallen world. You see, the error of the disciples is they commit this by going from general to specific. From sin has caused this man's condition to this man's sins or parents' sins has caused this condition. So there is a relationship between sin and suffering, but we as fallen infallible people should not be quick to look at what someone else is going through and say, ooh, mm, they must have a secret sin in their life. In fact, John Calvin once said, we're quick to do that when we see it in others, but when trouble falls upon us, we say, why, God, why is this happening? So I think it's better for us 
to stick to the general than to the specific. Another reason that we may be experiencing trials or difficulties or tribulations or what maybe we would call suffering is fatherly discipline. Father, our Father in heaven, can discipline his children if they um, so need it, if they've fallen into a sin, so on and so forth. Maybe you could consider uh, the way that Nathan comes and speaks to David, revealing his sin to him and bringing him to repentance. It's a fatherly kind of discipline. If a Christian experiences a trial or suffering of some sort, it's appropriate to assess if what they are experiencing is the corrective hand of their Heavenly Father. God and His love can discipline us and teach us that sin is wrong so that we can grow in obedience. Hebrews 12, 6 and verse 11 says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son He receives. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We know and understand on this human level that a father is truly a loving father, not if he lets his kids do whatever he wants and be his buddy-buddy with them, but that if he disciplines his children and corrects them and teaches them to walk in the ways of the Lord and the path of righteousness. So in God, in God's love, he can correct us when we sin. So that's one reason. Another reason is, ultimately, and you could summarize all this, particularly for the Christian, is that it's for our good. Some suffering that we experience has no connection to a specific sin at all. It has been ordained by God for us so that we may learn to let go of the world and cling to Him more deeply, so that the testing of our faith may produce perseverance, as James says, so that we may share in the suffering of Christ and for his namesake, as Peter says, so that we may bring glory to God through that suffering. All suffering for the Christian is ultimately for God's glory and for our good. And the healing of this blind man by Jesus in John 9 is one of those very special cases. You see, this is a divine appointment between a man whom God ordained to be born blind and to live in the time period in which Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, would be walking around on the earth so that when he encountered Christ, the work of God might be displayed in his life as a picture in the art gallery of God's work of redemption. But the healing of this blind man may display who God truly is, who Christ is. This man's blindness was ultimately for God's glory and for this man's good, for his good. You see, underneath all this question of sin's connection to suffering is an even deeper and more meaningful reality, and that is, who is God? You see, the disciples had a particular idea of who God was when they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They assumed that the way God dealt with sin was only by judgment. 
But Christ corrects their view. He's trying to get them to see that God is revealing himself in the flesh right before their eyes. God is a God who not only deals with sin punitively, he also deals with sin through the grace of Christ. Who is God? Christ says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The revelation of God in Christ Jesus shows us that God's relationship to sin and to suffering is not limited only to punishment and judgment, to wrath and anger. It is seen in Jesus' suffering for the sake of sin. Jesus was punished and judged in our place, just as this man is suffering so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. We also, as Christians, suffer that the work of God may, dis- may be displayed in our lives for God's glory and for our good. So we'll move on to the second point, sent to save. And Jesus, of course, responds to the disciples' questions. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. But there's more to this passage than simply the connection between sin and suffering. Christ did not come just to heal the blind and the lame, but that by his miraculous signs he may point to the salvation which would come through him. Christ was sent to save us from our greatest illness, our spiritual illness, our spiritual blindness. This is what Christ is saying to his disciples in verse 4. The work of God being displayed in this blind man is the work he must do, the work of God, the Father who sent him. In fact, in the Greek here it says, as long as it is day, we must work the works of him who sent me. We must work the works of him who sent me. While Christ is here on earth, he must be about this work. He is the light of the world. But Christ said earlier of himself in chapter 8, verse 12, that he was the light of the world. He is now going to display in the healing of this man born blind. John puts these words here to help us understand that Christ's declaration of the light of the world means something like healing a man who was born blind. And of course, because John is cueing us into this, we need to understand that this man represents those who are beneficiaries of Christ's mercy in contrast to the religious leaders who've rejected him. Therefore, this man represents those who are lost in the condition of sin and helplessly in need of a Savior. And who better to display our need of a Savior in our helpless, sinful condition than someone who was born blind? And one commentator sees this representation in four ways. First, the blind man is outside of the temple since his birth defect cuts him off from entering those holy grounds. The temple represented the very presence of God, and this man is cut off from it. Second, the blind man was unable to see Christ. Just as in our sin, we are unable to see the kingdom of God, as John told Nicodemus earlier in the gospel. Third, this man's condition was beyond the help of others. No mere human can give sight to a man born blind. And fourth, This man made no effort to seek salvation. He resigned himself to a life of begging in the darkness. And this helplessness was emphasized by Christ when he spat on the ground and he made some mud and he covered the man's eyes with it. Now, tons of people have talked about how strange 
and bizarre it is that this occurrence of Jesus healing a blind man uh, is with spit and mud and rubbing it on eyes. Jesus could have said, you're not blind. Done. But he doesn't. Well, A.W. Pink said this method, although strange, prefigured the Lord pressing upon the sinner his lost condition and need of a Savior. The placing of clay on his eyes emphasized our blindness. So you could say it's kind of like an insult. Jesus saying, you're blind, and guess what? I'm going to make you more blind by covering your eyes with mud. But there could be another reason behind the mud being placed on this man's eyes. Christ could have put the mud on this blind man's eyes so that the man would have to go wash it off. In verse 7, we're told that Jesus instructs the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he puts the spit and this mud on his eyes, and he says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So maybe Jesus only put the mud on his eyes so that he would have to go and wash. But that really begs the question, why is it that Jesus wants this man to wash in this pool? And why is it exactly that John here wants us to make sure that we understand what Siloam means. He puts a translation here, which means sent. This word means sent. It is because Christ had insisted that he is the one sent by God to bring light to the world. Because Christ is the sent one of the Father. John Calvin writes in his commentary, The evangelist purposely adds the interpretation of the word Siloam because that fountain, which was near the temple, daily reminded the Jews of Christ who was to come, but whom they despised when he was exhibited before them. The evangelist therefore magnifies the grace of Christ because he alone enlightens our darkness and restores sight to the blind. For the condition of our nature is delineated in the person of one man, that we are all destitute of light and understanding from the womb, that we ought to seek the cure of this evil from Christ alone. The waters in the pool of Siloam flowed through the temple mount where the sacrifices were offered, where sinners came to God through the blood shed for forgiveness. And so Christ here, in sending this man to wash in the pool of Siloam, is saying that if we desire to escape the darkness of this world and our sin, we must come through the pool that Jesus was sent by God to provide. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Christ was sent by the Father to save suffering sinners like you and me. But much in the same way Elisha ordered Naaman in the Old Testament to go and wash in the Jordan, the sending of this man to go wash in the pool by Christ provided him with an opportunity to express his faith indeed. Faith without works is dead, as James tells us. So we're told the man went and washed and came home seen. And what's interesting about this is we, we hear nothing of his questioning of Christ. 
We hear nothing of him asking, why are you putting spit and mud on my eyes? All we have is that he simply listened, and he did it. He expressed faith. He believed, and he obeyed. In the same way, when Christ has come to us and opened our eyes to see, he calls us to a life of spirit-empowered obedience. When he comes and removes the guilt of sin from our hearts, when he saves us from our spiritual blindness, that we may lay hold of the promises of the gospel, he calls us to live for him. You see, Christ is the sent one of God, but he also sends the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. Christ is the sent one of God, but he also sends us as his ambassadors into the world to live kingdom lives. Christ himself told us in this very passage that he is the light of the world, but he also said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, it's interesting that in this passage in verse 4, Christ says to his disciples, we, we, must do the work of him who sent me. We must do the work of him who sent me. We must work the works of him who sent me. He includes his disciples in the work he was sent by God to accomplish, almost as if foreshadowing the commission he would give to them after his resurrection and prior to his ascension. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ was sent to save, but we also have been sent to share the good news of the gospel that Christ was sent to save. Sinners like you and me. Let's look at this final point, show and tell. The first thing that we should take notice of here is that when a man who's born blind all of a sudden is walking around and seeing, people notice. People notice. They go, hey, I know you. I thought you were blind. So, then it should not be a surprise to us to find this very reaction in our passage this morning. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him began, uh, begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. So there was some controversy about could this possibly be this man. Well, you see, when such a dramatic transformation takes place, people wonder what's happened. Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? But the opinion was mixed. Some said it was. Some said, no, it only looks like him. And the shock and confusion is understandable. People born blind don't just wake up one day with perfect 20-20 vision. Something supernatural has happened. Something strange, uncommon, unnatural. But the change is undeniable. The change is undeniable. 
And just like this man was noticed as not being blind anymore, some people may say of us, isn't this the same man who used to lie all the time in school? Isn't this the same man who used to pick on me in high school? Whatever it may be. You see, we may not all have a dramatic conversion like the one described before us here in the blind man's experience. But we also all have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And the change wrought in our depraved hearts should be obvious to all. So my encouragement to you is show, show in your life and your kindness and your love and your care and your consideration of others that you belong to a kingdom not of this world. That you have a king And his laws are written on your heart. And those laws are not burdensome. And they speak of a heavenly country whose maker and founder is God. That your life as a Christian who was blind, born into the blindness of sin, and who had their eyes opened by the grace of God, should be expressly Christian in character. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But it shouldn't end there. And what I mean by that is, don't just show, tell. Don't just show, tell. You see, it's not enough to simply show in your actions and in a changed life that you have been transformed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Mormons are great people. There are some really great Mormons who have wonderful family lives. There are very kind, homosexual, monogamous couples. And if kindness alone is what makes someone a Christian... We are going to confuse others. What do I mean by that? This is why some who are not taught deeply the truths of Scripture lose their footing when they realize that there are kind people who aren't Christians. Well, if my Mormon friend is kinder than most Christians I know and their family life is a lot better than a lot of Christian homes I know, then Mormonism must be fine. Or here's a good one. Ellen DeGeneres is such a kind and loving person, and she does so much good in this world, more than many Christians I know, than than being a lesbian and living an openly lesbian lifestyle must be fine. This must categorically be denied. Because Christian life is not only about showing kindness. It's about telling the truth of where that kindness comes from. Where that love comes from. A changed life means nothing if it is not matched with the truth of God's word. And the goodness of our changed lives can be misunderstood to be the goodness of a mourned life. 
if we do not open our mouths to express who the source of our heart change is. We cannot only show as this blind man did, we must tell. This can't be the man who was born blind. I am that man. I am that man. He declared that he truly was. He was the blind man that they saw begging day after day. But now he can see. They saw, but they couldn't know until the man opened his mouth to declare the truth of their curiosity. This is what it is at the heart of Peter's word in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. These are words to a people in the midst of suffering and persecution. And Peter here is encouraging them to have a distinctly Christian response to the people who are speaking falsely about them. If they return hatred for kindness, loss of possessions with hope, etc., they're going to draw the attention of those who are mistreating them. So when these haters ask why these Christians are different, they are to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have. This man's courage, this blind man's courage, is seen in speaking up and declaring, he is the man who was born blind. But his courage doesn't end there. Because our message must come with more than simply expressing that it is true, we have changed. We must eventually turn to who it is who's changed us. Pay attention to the way this man answers. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus. When asked how his eyes opened, he focused upon the who and not the how. I mean, it was pretty bizarre to get mud on your eyes, right? Maybe you would say something like that. But the man they called Jesus, the man they called Jesus, he's the one who opened my eyes. He's the one that saved me, not only from my physical blindness, but my spiritual blindness. It was not until the name of Christ was proclaimed that he went on to tell those curious about his miraculous healing, how Christ went about doing it. In the same way, when people notice the change in us, when we speak up and admit that we have changed, we must not stop there. We need to push forward to proclaim the name of Christ. We must not point to ourselves the how but also to the true source of our transformation, the who. The answer we should be prepared to give for the reason for the hope we have begins by revering Christ as Lord in our hearts. That answer must be filled with Christ. The focus must be upon Him, how He saved you when you were fallen, helpless, and powerless, and unworthy to be saved. And how Christ came and made us new. The sent one of God came and redeemed us by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He suffered for our sins and was raised for our justification. And now he forever lives to intercede for us. He sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven and has been given power and dominion and a kingdom that will have no end. He is my only comfort in life and in death. He is my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the kind of content that must come with our proclamation, with our testimony. And verse 12 ends this section in a rather strange way because it introduces the fact that Christ is going to disappear from the public eye, reappearing only at the end of this chapter to minister to the man after he was persecuted by the religious leaders. Right now, in this moment, Christ remains hidden. Where is this man? 
He answered, I don't know. But soon these same people would be crying out, Hosanna, as he rode into the city. They would witness and participate in his rejection and his death. Crucify him! Crucify him! They will cry out. They will all see him as he's lifted up on the cross. They would see his dead body taken down and placed in a rich man's tomb. Where is this man? Where is he now? I'm glad you asked. He was raised from the dead and is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father while all his enemies are being placed under his feet in victory. He is still opening the eyes of the blind men through the ministry of the gospel. In his church, he shines forth his light into a dark world. And may all know that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. May we know that as long as it is today, we are called to carry the light of Christ into dark places and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Christ will return, but not until we've done all the works of him who sent us. And may we go boldly and confidently that others on that day might sing with us those precious, precious words. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Amen. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that it reveals to us the art gallery of your redemption in Christ Jesus, that we may marvel at this man who was born blind who was healed by your son, Jesus Christ, and know that in the same way, through the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ, and through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, our spiritual blindness has been healed as well. And may we have confidence and boldness in proclaiming the good news of the gospel as we continue to march forward into this world as those who have been redeemed by you testifying to the goodness of the gospel and the salvation that we sinners, suffering sinners, have in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the light of the world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.